order to graduate high school, I had to pass a test. For me to receive that little high school diploma that we often don't think much about, there actually had to be a test that I had to pass. And at that time, it was called the high school exit exam. I don't know if they still do those anymore or how any of that works. But if you think about it, what is graduation? Whether you graduate from college or high school or elementary school or even I've heard of preschools that do graduation ceremonies, that graduation ceremony and that certificate is kind of verification of certain things. It's verification that you can confess certain things and you believe certain things. It tests certain skills to make sure you can do those skills and things like that. For example, for me to graduate high school, I had to understand some basic English, right? That a subject is comprised of a subject and a predicate or whatever it might be. Or in math, that pi is four, what is pi anymore? Three. Last time when I practiced with my wife, I had it wrong, see? It hasn't changed, it's still the same. Or in physics, there's certain laws in physics that I had to learn and understand the law of inertia and other things and how weights and things drop at the same rate. There's also chemistry tables. These are facts that you have to learn and you know share in order to get that diploma. And a diploma is an endorsement or a verification that you know those certain facts or you can do those certain skills or at least you'll confess that those things are true. And I tell you those examples because we're going to read about Paul here who submits his gospel message to the apostles so they can verify and endorse what he had been preaching and teaching for so many years. Much like that exit exam that I had to take and complete and pass, we are going to see here how Paul's gospel message gets evaluated by the apostles in Jerusalem. So let's read Galatians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 10 together. He says, Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Verse 3 says, But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Verse 6. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they go to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. That's God's word, Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, for us today. 
Now, before we look at individual parts of this passage, it's good to notice how chapters 1 and 2 are a biography of Paul, kind of a selected autobiography of Paul. In Galatians 1, we looked at how at the substance of the gospel, about how Christ died for our sins to rescue us from the evil present evil age. We also looked at the source of his gospel message and how this was a revelation given directly to him from Jesus Christ. And in this way, it showed that Paul was independent of those apostles in Jerusalem, that he had been given this gospel directly from Jesus Christ. But here in Galatians 2, we learn that Paul um, meets with these apostles, but they don't add anything to his gospel message. The only thing we learn is that he's preaching the same gospel message they are, but to a different audience. So while he is independent of those apostles, they also are independent, interdependent in that they're doing the same thing, but to different audiences. And I've titled the message today, A Gospel Get-Together, because we see Paul and his group go to Jerusalem to meet with the Jerusalem apostles, and they share this message together and kind of make a resolution together that they look at. So today we're going to look at the source of this meeting that occurs, the conflict that comes up because of these people that secretly sneak into the meeting. We're going to look at the different part participants in the meeting, and then the outcomes and what the result was of it. And so the source of this meeting, we read in verse 1, says that after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. This second visit to Jerusalem was 14 years later after Paul's conversion, and three years later after he had been to Jerusalem the first time, which we read about last week. But the reason he goes to Jerusalem, he shares in verse 2 at the very beginning, he says, It was because of a revelation that I went up. But what was that revelation? If you turn to Acts chapter 11, verse 27, we learn about this revelation that Paul gets that sends him on this mission uh, to Jerusalem. So in Acts 11, verses 27 through 30, says, uh, so Paul and Barnabas, they're in Antioch, which is way north of Jerusalem, sharing the gospel. So in verse 27 of Acts 11, says, now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them was named Agabus. And he stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. Verse 29, And in proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief to the brethren living in Judea. And Jerusalem is located in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas, and Saul to the elders. And that's the passage we read about here, is that Agabus shows up to Antioch, which is where Paul was, and he talks about, he has this vision, this revelation of this famine, and because of that, they send Barnabas and Paul to Jerusalem for this visit to help the poor people living in Jerusalem. There's an offering that Paul and Barnabas took in Antioch, just like we took an offering here today, and they took that offering to help the poor in Jerusalem. But something happens while they're in Jerusalem, and Paul gets a little sidetracked from that original mission. Verse 2, the verse 2 says, It was because of a revelation I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, 
for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Now notice here he says, I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, which was a which was a gospel among the Gentiles that meant they didn't have to follow the Old Testament law, that they were saved by their faith in Christ because Christ died for our sins. But Paul mentions that he, he does that because he was fearful that he might be running or had run this race in vain. And some people might say on this passage when they read this that it's been 14 years since Paul has received the gospel. Maybe he's afraid that he's departed a little bit or his gospel message isn't as clear as it used to be. Maybe he goes to these apostles to verify it's still right on track. That's one, one view. But I think what he's really trying to say here is that he's been doing this ministry for 14 years, telling the Galatians and the, the Gentiles that they don't have to follow the Old Testament law to be saved. They don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. But while he's in Jerusalem, he wants to verify and make sure that the apostles are teaching the same thing. Because if they aren't teaching that same thing, everything Paul does is going to be for nothing and in vain. An example of this, modern day example, is when I was an associate pastor at the last church I worked for. I worked for a senior pastor. And there were certain issues or decisions I knew I had to make that might be a little controversial. And so in those decisions, I would always talk to the senior pastor to make sure he agreed with what I was going to do. Because if I did something that he doesn't agree with, it would never continue on, right? I had to make sure that the people, the person I was working for, agreed with what I was about to do for that support. And it's the same message here. Paul is afraid that these well-known people in Jerusalem, if they don't share the same thing he does, it would all be for nothing. Okay, so we've looked at the reason Paul went to Jerusalem, and while he was there, he decides to kind of verify his gospel message with those apostles. But Paul runs into some trouble while he's in Jerusalem. Some troublemakers show up in his interactions with the apostle. There's a group of false brethren that we're going to read about that sneak in and cause issues that happen to be some of the same issues Paul is trying to combat with these believers in Galatia. So verses 3, 4, and 5, I'm going to read together as we look at the conflict that arises at this meeting. He says in verse 3, But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Now these false brethren that we read about have a similar message that the legalizers have in Galatia, we've talked about. And we talked in that first week about these legalizers in the church in Galatia. There's this table that they have, and there's four legs that support the table about how the, Jew, the Gentiles need to follow the laws of the Jews in order to be saved. And one of those four legs was that they needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. And these false brethren are introducing that same concept here in Jerusalem when Paul is meeting with the apostles. And these false brethren sneak in in verse 4. It says they sneak in on the side and kind of sneak into the meeting. And they've got two purposes. One, they sneak in to spy out the liberty that the Christians have. It says they snuck in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus. 
And what was that liberty that they have in Christ Jesus? That they're saved based on their faith in Christ and Christ who died for their sins and nothing else like that. The second purpose these false brethren have in verse 4 is that they wanted the true Christians to be put in bondage under the law. And you notice this contrast here. It's Christian liberty and spiritual liberty or spiritual bondage under the law. One translation even says that these false brethren wanted to make them as slaves. But in verse 5, Paul does not yield to them. And in fact, he pushes back on their pressure that they are putting on him. He writes, But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Here we see that Paul has a backbone. He recognized the false motives that these false brethren have, and he and what they're trying to do and he does not surrender and he does not cave in to their demands and when it says not even for a moment um, or not even for an hour in my translation means not even for a second or not even for a moment in the greek language the smallest way to describe time was an hour so he's saying in literally the smallest time period they didn't even surrender to them and notice the purpose of why he didn't yield so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. The false brethren wanted to put Paul and his people under bondage, but Paul wanted them to enjoy freedom in Christ. And that's the truth of the gospel that he talks about here in verse 5. Charles Ryrie in his study Bible, he notes on this verse, he says, Grace is everything to everyone. To compromise these truths was unthinkable. And these false brethren that are talked about in Jerusalem, that are trying to add circumcision onto the gospel, they've gone away from the gospel message. They've gone AWOL, we could say, of what the true gospel is, and it's a serious business. It's a serious issue. And to see part of the outcome of this meeting described in verses 4 and 5, you've got to back up to verse 3, and we see what Paul does as a result. Paul explains that even Titus, who was a Greek, and should have been circumcised based on the false brethren's teachings, um, was not. He writes, but not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, which is, means he's a Gentile, he's not a Jew, was compelled. Not even Titus was compelled to be circumcised. Now, Titus was a, gen a Gentile man that had accepted the gospel, but he had never been circumcised. And this topic of circumcision was an interesting one because in that early first century church, the first converts to Christianity, the first followers of Jesus, were all Jewish. And the men had already been circumcised, so it wasn't really an issue. It wasn't until Paul leaves and he's in Antioch and starting to go around all these places that Gentiles get saved and they have this serious um, question. Do we need to be circumcised in order to be saved just like the Jews are circumcised? And circumcision in the Bible, which you probably are familiar with, but if not, it's talked about in Genesis 15, where God makes a covenant with Abraham and makes a promise with Abraham. And part of that promise is that Abraham and his family get circumcised. And then when the law comes along in the book of Exodus, God reaffirms it with Moses and there's more procedures given. And it was one of those things, circumcision was one of those ways that God wanted his people in Israel to be unique and distinct and separate than all the other nations around them. And it was one way to do that. But Paul here says that even Titus, who was a Gentile, did not get circumcised. Paul, in his defense, he presents Exhibit A for these guys right in front of them. Titus, a Gentile that has not been circumcised, 
and did not get circumcised as a result of their message. And I want to transition here from talking about the conflict that occurs at this meeting and describe for you some of the participants that are at this meeting um, because it gets a little confusing. There's different terms used to describe different people. And so the participants at this meeting, there really are four, maybe five different participants at this meeting, mostly described in verses six through nine. We've talked about those false brethren that snuck in. That's one group. Then we have the traveling missionaries. The traveling missionaries are Paul, Barnabas, and Titus, talked about in verses two, three, and nine. These were the guys in Antioch I shared with you that came down to Jerusalem and Paul been doing ministry for 14 years. And the audience of those traveling missionaries is another group of participants. And these are the Gentiles that are talked about in verses 2, 8, and 9. And they're also called the uncircumcised in verse 7. So we've got the traveling mercenaries, uh, not mercenaries, the traveling missionaries of Paul, Barnabas, and Titus. The Gentiles, which are their audience. And then we have the Jerusalem preachers that are there in the city of Jerusalem. This is Peter, James, and John, talked about in verses 7, 8, and 9. Some translations will say Cephas, but that is uh, Peter, the same guy. Different names for the same guy. They're also referred to in this passage as those of reputation in verses 2 and 6, or those of high reputation, verse 6. Those who were reputed to be pillars of the church in verse 9. We can call these three guys the big three. These guys served in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was kind of the headquarters of Christianity. It was the, the mothership, so to speak, of everything going on, and they were in charge of it there. So these Jerusalem preachers are another group, and they have a different audience than the traveling missionaries. And their audience were the Jews in Jerusalem, which are talked about as the circumcised in verses 7, 8, and 9. And then also we have the false brethren as a fifth group that I've already mentioned. Um, in verse 4, they're talking about having snuck into this meeting. Now notice we have different groups of people, but they have the same gospel message. Excuse me. The traveling missionaries and these Jerusalem preachers have different groups of people they're trying to reach, but they have the same gospel message. They're using their own backgrounds and ministry and, and family heritage and things like that to reach a unique and different people separately, but with the same message. So now that we've identified the reason for this meeting and the participants, let's look at the outcome of the meeting and the, uh, between these traveling missionaries and the Jerusalem preachers. The outcomes of this meeting. I'm going to start with um, I'm going to start with verse 6 reading there, but we've already learned about one of the outcomes of this meeting. Verse 3 that Titus didn't get circumcised. Okay? That he didn't get circumcised. In verse 6, we read about one of the outcomes of this meeting that the apostles contributed nothing to Paul. Verse 6 says, "But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. The apostles didn't add anything to Paul's authority because he's already been appointed by Christ, and they didn't add anything to his message. Then in verse 7, the apostles saw that Paul had been entrusted with the gospel message. It says, but on the contrary, since they didn't add anything, on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, 
just as Peter had been to the circumcised. The apostles recognized that Peter and Paul are kind of equals. They're doing the same thing, but to different groups of people. And in verse 8, the apostles recognized God had worked in Paul for ministry to the Gentiles. Verse 8 says, For he who effectually worked for Peter and his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. J. Vernon McGee always kind of has a good southern way of explaining scripture. And on this verse, he talks about how the proof of the pudding, of course, is always in the eating, is his little statement he has on this. Which he means, for those of us that don't speak Southern Texan, um, the results were the same, right? Peter goes to the Jews, and he reaches them. Paul goes to the Gentiles, and he reaches them. They're on equal footing. The proof of the pudding is in the eating and their results, okay? Um, and notice here in verse 8, at the very beginning, at least in my translation, the capital he at the very beginning of that verse. For he who effectually worked for Peter... This is something that God is doing through these men. God is using each of these men for ministry, using their background education, in Paul's case, or lack of in Peter's, their background family and heritage and, and personalities to reach different people through ministry. And God is the one doing ministry through them, based on verse 8. Another outcome here is that the apostles recognized that grace given to Paul in verse 9 says, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed pillars of the church. They recognize that God, Paul has been doing good ministry. He's doing good things, and he is making a difference in ministry and sharing with them. Another outcome is the apostles gave Paul and Barnabas a sign of friendship. Verse 9, if you turn towards the end of verse 9, it says that James... Peter and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And when it mentions right hand there, right hand in the Greek was a symbol of friendship or agreement. This is their friendly way of endorsing them and verifying that Paul and these traveling missionaries are doing good work and they should continue. And then lastly, in verse 10, verse 10 kind of circles back to the whole reason Paul has even gone to Jerusalem. It says, they only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So Paul has arrived in Jerusalem to help the poor, and now he is asked to continue helping the poor in their ministry. And it's interesting that amongst this battle that occurs and kind of erupts out of nowhere in Jerusalem... The apostles step back and ask Paul to remember the poor and to help them. Warren Wiersbe writes about this word, verse, Correct doctrine is never a substitute to Christian duty. And he's right. And believing the right things isn't enough. We also have to care for others and show love for them and what we do. But it's easy to get busy and forget about the poor. Often with good things in our lives, we're busy meeting with people, doing Bible studies or discipling them, we're taking care of the church to make sure it looks good and the air conditioning works. Um, we're working with the kids and taking care of them and making sure they're being discipled and loved and cared for. Or visiting church members in the hospital and loving them and praying with them. Those are all good things. But amongst those, sometimes it's easy to forget about the poor amongst the things that we do. 
But Paul is reminded here to take care of the poor. And I love the verb he uses here. He says, I was eager to do that. He was eager to help the poor. And we know that he practices what he preaches because he's there in Jerusalem for that same very reason. And then if you continue reading the book of Acts, in Acts 24, he does the exact same thing again. He takes money from the Gentiles. He doesn't take money. He accepts an offering. And then, that's a better way to put it, okay? He accepts an offering from the Gentiles and then takes it to Jerusalem to help um, the poor believers in Jerusalem. That's in Acts 24. He also talks about helping other people in the same way in Romans 15 and 2 Corinthians 8 and 2 Corinthians 9. So we know that he practices what we, he preaches. But what do we do about this gospel get-together we've read? How do we apply some of these things to our lives based on what we've just studied? I think there's three ways we can apply this passage to our life. Number one, find your ministry is the first thing. You can find your ministry. In this passage, we saw Paul had a specific ministry to the world of the Gentiles, while Peter and his guys had a specific ministry to the world of the Jews. Same message, but completely different, opposite people groups and locations. For you, I encourage you to find your ministry within God's church. It might be mowing the lawn outside. Some people like to clean the church and take care of the church that way. Some people just enjoy fixing things, working with kids, uh, praying for people that are elderly or sick or visiting them. I encourage you to find your ministry, whatever that might look like. And the great thing about being part of a church is that you get to volunteer, which means you get to choose what you like to do and help in those areas. So the first application is to find your ministry. Number two is fight for the truth. Fight for the truth, just as we've seen here. We live in a culture where it's becoming more and more difficult to find people that believe what we believe. And as a result, we find ourselves as Christians having to fight for the truth of what the church stands for, what the Bible teaches, and what traditional Christian doctrine is. We have people in our culture that say, and you might have heard this, but the Bible says this, but what it really means is this. And a modern day example of that is the LGBTQ things and gender debate and sexuality where we say, well, the Bible says that, but it doesn't really mean those things. It means this. And as a result, a lot of churches have had to push back on that cultural movement that we've had, where they've had to add to their doctrinal statement or even create additional supplement papers that define their denomination and what they stand for so they don't get sued or things like that, right? That's one way the church has had to fight for the truth and fight back on those traditional ways that we've understood scripture. We've had other groups that kind of just say, oh, we all just believe the same thing. We just believe the same thing. That's another kind of opposite end. One of our friends from California that my wife and I uh, used to spend a lot of time with, Brad and Laurel, Brad loves to talk to the Mormon guys that come to his house. They have a little apartment, and every year or so they'd get a new group of two Mormon guys, and it was kind of like the same, he'd get to start all over again for Brad. And so right before we moved here, he told me that they had a new group of Mormon guys come, and so they invited him in, and Brad tells the Mormon guys, he says, just so you know, I'm Protestant, Evangelical, Christian, I'm a strong believer, I want you guys to know. And then Brad asked them, so what do you guys believe in Mormon? And his response, he said, they said, both the guys said, well, we believe what you believe. And Brad's like, 
No, not at all. Now let me tell you, and he's got his list, you know, and he lectures to him. But that's another way we have to kind of fight against some people that say, we just worship the same God and we're all the same and, and things like that. That's another way that we have to fight for the truth. Another one sometimes even comes in the form of movies that we see. Even Christian movies sometimes take literary license to fill in the details, but sometimes they even kind of change the message of scripture, what's in there. And the last church I worked at, I used to teach a Sunday school class for new believers. And one gal, she used to love to watch TV and Christian movies. So she'd come to church early and then she'd, I saw this movie and I'm like, okay, that's not quite in there. That's okay that they said that, but that's not in scripture. Or one day she said, man, it's really sad that Paul dies at the end of the book of Acts. I said, if you read that, he didn't die at the end of the book. She goes, no, I saw the movie this week. He did die at one point, but it's not in scripture. It's not in the Bible. So those are ways that we have to gently and lovely, lovingly fight for the truth. Okay, so we find your ministry, fight for the truth, and last, focus on the poor. Verse 1 here in our passage starts with Paul going to Jerusalem to help the poor, and it ends in verse 10 with a reminder for him to keep doing that. Chuck Swindoll writes, the gospel is not a list of prepositions to be locked away in our heads, but a life-changing power meant to be expressed through our hearts and our hands from the inside out. And we do that by helping the poor. All of us are called to help the poor, and it doesn't have to be something we do every minute of every day or to help the most homeless poor person in the world. It could be just one person or one family less fortunate than us. It could be an elderly person that has some broken sprinklers and you can go over there and help them fix their sprinklers. It could be a single adult that lives all alone and they're sick and they just need somebody to go to Rite Aid to get them some medicine and bring it to them. Or it could be a young family that has kids and needs someone to watch their kids so they can take a date night when they might not be able to afford that. If we all just pick one person or one family, that's the way that we can help the poor and to minister to them in that way. So as we wrap up our time together, we've read this morning about the gathering of these leaders in Jerusalem, in first century Jerusalem. There was a conflict over that gospel message, but Paul fought for the truth, and we saw that. And we saw how each group had their own unique ministry that they went to and that they did. And we've been reminded the poor. So as we close our time together, like Paul and these guys, let's find our ministry Let's fight for the truth, and let's focus on the poor.